Hello and welcome to this edition of the DMZ America podcast. This is episode number 71, if you can believe it. I'm Scott Stantis. I'll be coming to you from the right. And I believe I'll probably still be coming to you from the left. I'm Ted Rall. And we're going to have a really interesting conversation. By the way, it's October 21st. It's Friday. That's salient here, Ted. And I'll tell you why. Because our guest, we have a special guest here, and we're going to be talking about a news story that no one is really talking about yet until they are. <laughs> yeah, well, until they, until they will be. And this is going to be, I suspect that this uh, particular edition will probably just sort of sit like a toad until the story gets big, and then we'll push it back out, and then suddenly everyone will want to hear it. So, Yes. My friend joining us in a minute is Toby Kemp. He works for a Norfolk Norfolk. Southern Railroad, and there's going to be a railroad strike. Uh, the news that broke over the over the evening is the uh, railroads have turned down yet another offer. Why is the date important, Ted? Why was that salient? Because we were supposed to record this Tuesday or Wednesday of this week. Why sure. couldn't we? Because Norfolk Southern fucked over our friend Toby Kemp, and the scheduling <laughs> is so screwed up. I mean, let, let me let me give some backstory here. And I, I talked to Ted. I called Ted almost immediately when I was driving back from having coffee with my friend Toby. Toby works for the railroad, and he just got this great job, and it pays well, good benefits, all, you know, nice all that. But the scheduling is so screwed up. And he was explaining it to me, and walking away, I went, "Wait a minute. That means you have no sick days. It means you and, and you have no really. You can't schedule your life. You know that whole work life balance thing we keep talking about." <laughs> No. <laughs> so, um, and I was flummoxed. I was just stunned. Now, when President Biden then stepped in and there is there, the, the union was threatening a strike. Uh, President Biden steps in and saves the saves the day by everyone gets a raise, which is like, woohoo, that's great. Here's the problem. That's not what they're striking about. They're striking about exactly why. And and Toby can and I'm gonna bring Toby Kim. Toby, come on in. Hi, hello. Hello, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Scott. Th Thank you, Ted. Thanks for thanks for coming on. Um, you know, so so just use the same words like we did when we were having coffee the other day. And because what's hilarious is he told me all this stuff. I told Ted all this stuff, and then literally forty-eight hours, there was a report on NPR that said the exact same thing. Now, so Toby, go ahead and tell us what you know. For instance, your your scheduling, your your your. Well, I, before before we do that, I think we should just just like talk about a little bit about where we are with the contract negotiations, right? I mean, so there's uh, the strike. There, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Toby. My understanding is that there's eight unions involved in these negotiations, and that one union in particular um, has been voted against. To uh, they voted against the uh, arbitration agreement, and uh, and so that's why uh, there's this. That's why things are still pending. And also, I don't know what the deadline is for negotiations um, to come to a conclusion. But basically, uh, we're not at the strike yet. But if uh, if the if the railroads aren't able or willing to concede uh, more time off for sick days and more scheduling flexibility, that's going to probably be a problem for the holdout union and perhaps for some of the unions that previously signed off. If, is that that's my understanding? Is that basically right, or am, am I missing? Uh, no, yes, that is that is basically uh, correct. Um, we always go through this, they go through this and have cooling off periods once a tentative agreement is reached and we disagree and can't come to can't come to an understanding. Then there's a cooling off period. Then we are finally allowed to strike. Uh, it looks like the current date for the strike, uh, if it occurs, will be um, November 19th. Going right into the Christmas shopping season. Exactly. Uh-huh. Um, so obviously, this it, uh, I, I don't think it needs to be detailed that uh, a rail strike would have uh, massive economic consequences. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of stuff still a lot of stuff in the economy moves by rail, and it would also affect uh, to the extent that like people in the Northeast care about this. It would affect Amtrak uh, uh, commuter rail. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, maybe not so much the Northeast corridor that has dedicated uh, tracks, but certainly 
Uh, for example, people, I, I have friends who recently uh, went to North Carolina by, uh, from New York and, and that pending the, the, the rail strike deadline previously, Amtrak had notified customers that, uh, the, the, that their train might have been canceled uh, in the event that the strike had gone forward. So, I mean, it, it will be a big fucking deal if this happens. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. No, I mean, I mean, yeah. And I wanted to get into that later, but first, I wanted to kind of tee up what, what, what are you guys striking? What are you guys, what are you guys agitating for? What do you want? Uh, well, like you said, they they said, well, congratulations, here's a nice raise. Well, that's great. Everyone loves everyone loves money. <laughs> that's not what we're asking for. Um, uh, even in the with President Biden's uh, presidential board that he put together, he never addressed. All he addressed was, here's some more money. We, he never addressed what we were asking for, which is uh, paid time off, paid sick days, uh, time off for sick days, basically. Um, the way it works now is, sure, you have vacation days if you can schedule them. Uh, but say your child gets sick. Say you, you have an elderly in my case, you have an elderly parent that you have to take to a doctor's office, to a doctor's visit. Uh, there's no allowance for you to just take a day off work to do that without being penalized. And penalized that's how? What, um, well, dealing with diff so many different railroads and, and, and different groups, um, they all have different attendance policies. Some go on a point-based system where taking an unscheduled day off costs you so many points and um, it'll say you're a, you're allotted 30 points. Well, that's great. But if you take an unscheduled day off, it costs you 15 points and then it's going to take you six weeks of, of constant working to earn back those points that it cost you. So um, let me get this straight, just, just to jump in real quick. I mean, we, we just had like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but yes. we just had a pandemic. So Correct. if you came down with, let's say, oh, I don't know. Let's think of a disease. Shall we, Ted? <laughs> I don't know. Let's say COVID. For just, example. As an example. As a, and that knocks you out. I, it, well, damn near killed me. And Ted had it and it damn near killed him. So um, that was two weeks minimum. What would that right. do to your employment? Um. Well, I came in, I, I'm, I'm a recent employee, so I, I didn't have to deal with COVID. So I, I do have to assume in, when you're dealing with a pandemic and you have COVID, there are allowances for that. I can't, I can't swear to that. I can't tell you, I can't tell you two weeks, two weeks off work, um, just not showing up to work. You, you most likely will not have a job. Seriously. So if you had COVID, you call in sick, but, but now, now, uh, as I said, with it being, with it being COVID, I'm certain the railroad um, for all their faults, I'm certain they had allowances for that. I came in on the tail end of, of, of coming out of the pandemic. So I, I never had to uh, address that managed to managed to have COVID twice, but never had to deal with it with the railroad. So let me, okay. So you have, so, so you don't have paid sick days um, and tell, tell our listeners a little bit about, and then we can get into the minutiae of all this stuff, but I, I really want to oh, tee this can I up. Ask, what, what's the vacation day policy? Is that, how, how is that rate? Uh, vacation, you, um, much like any other company, you, you earn your vacation days, much like any other company. How, do you, how many do you get to start? Is it the stand sort of the two weeks or like? It, it is. Uh, you start off with one week after working 200 and I believe it is 260 days. Once you have worked 260 days, uh -huh. then you, you accrue one week of vacation. Okay. So it's not like this is a, a you know, so it's not like they give you four weeks vacation to start and you could use some of those vacation days as your sick days, if you got sick or anything like that, it's, it's it's not a particularly generous vacation policy. No, no, you're allotted as a as when you first hire in, you're allotted three personal days. You're you're allowed three personal days. Uh, once again, and those are three personal days that you would need to schedule. 
Now I have a major logistics question here. So, so obviously, okay. So this is, this is a train. So like people drive trains from one place to the other, but they don't live. They only live at most in one of those places, right? At most. So, so let's say you drive a train from city A to city B. I feel like I'm in an algebra, one of those algebra problems. (laughs) (laughs) You have a pocket full of nickels. At at 204. Um, So, so like uh, if, so to the point is that like, what happens when you arrive at city B? Do you cool? Are you still on the payroll? Um, Are you, do you just get back on a train and come back the next, that same day? Are you, are you cooling your heels in a hotel or in a company facility, like how does that work? Like, let's say you you live in Birmingham, Alabama, and you drive a train to Nashville. I don't even know if that's possible. Um, but let's <laughs> just say, can you can't do you then spend the night in Nashville or two nights until you have a train to get back on? How does that work? Okay. Um, yes, it is um, much like uh, with with truck drivers. There are federal regulations for how long. Um, train crews are allowed to work. We are allowed to work 12 hours, then we're required to have a 10 hour rest period. Mm -hmm. So basically the furthest you can travel is how far that train can make it in 12 hours. From Birmingham, that would be Chattanooga, Chattanooga, Mm -hmm. uh, Meridian, Mississippi, or uh, Atlanta, Georgia. So you would take the train there, you would take a train say to Chattanooga, um, then they would put you in a hotel where you would have your, your, uh, required 10 hour rest period. And then you would be scheduled to come back on another train from Chattanooga back to Birmingham. Do they usually have a train ready to go the next day? Or is it, might you find yourself, you know, in another city for several days? Um, it is, it is entirely possible that you will spend a day, a day and a half in the hotel waiting for a train to come back. That is, yes, that is entirely. Sometimes just depending on the schedule, you are immediately called out as soon as your 10 hours is up. Sometimes you'll find yourself sitting in a hotel for a day, a day and a half. And well, let me jump. You, you're on the payroll while you're, while you're at the hotel or not. Are you being paid? Uh, <laughs> they, again, how they, how they work it is once your 10 hours is up, then you sit there not on the payroll as, as a conductor. Now rules are different for conductors and for engineers. I'm a conductor, so I can only speak as a conductor. Um, once your 10 hour rest period is up, then you are basically sitting in the hotel off the clock for another eight hours. If you're in the hotel over that eight hours, then you go back on the clock. So and let me then, jump in too, because like I said, at the top of this segment, we, you know, we, we were supposed to record this earlier. And so one of the other problems with the scheduling is what happened earlier in the week, Toby, you were going to have two days off and. Okay. Um, I was scheduled to be off, I believe Tuesday and Wednesday. I was, was, or were my scheduled off days. That's what you told me. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was telling the truth. I promise. Well, what happens and, and what happens very, very often with the railroad is your off day starts at 530 a.m. So my off day started at 530 a.m. Tuesday and went until 530 a.m. Thursday. Well, at 529 a.m. on Tuesday morning, they can call you into work. Which is essentially what happened. So 10, say 10 minutes before your off days are scheduled to start, you're called into work and now you're going to be on the road with trains for another two, three days. And, and you can't, okay. and you can't say, and you can't say no. I mean, I mean, it's a penalty. If you say I can't, I, my kid has got to get fitted for, you know, leg braces or something. You can't. Correct. Correct. Because, because your off day has not officially started. So you are still technically on call. So it is, it is, you are, it's a, it's a penalty. If you say, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Yeah. <sighs> you can see why uh, workers would get agitated under a system like this. Um, so what, so 
I guess one question I have is, is this a new state of affairs? Uh, I, uh, my understanding is that the, the, the train scheduling system changed radically a few years ago, and that a lot of these problems come out of that. Is, is that basically right? Like, if you can, can you talk about that a little bit? Um, well, what, cha- what changed was, a new, was and, and the railroad has, has, as I understand, the railroad has always done this. It's feast and famine. They, they hire way more people than they need. Then they, they realize they have a glut of employees, so they start laying people off. Um, what changed with a new system that they, they, in, they decided would work better is they laid off um, or furloughed a huge number of employees and decided um, that we could make, we could be more efficient by making fewer trains, but making them longer. So instead of, instead of running 6,000 foot trains, we'll run 12, 15,000 foot trains. We can run fewer of them and we can get by with fewer people. Well, the, the fewer people that they have are being worked to death. How, I mean, how, how does a longer train I mean, help people understand why that's more work? I mean, it sounds like it, but you guys have to walk the train, right? I mean, part of your job is to make sure the cables are connected. Make sure everything is connected. And right. I remember enough math to know that 12,000 feet is over two miles. Correct. Very, very much so. And what happens? Yes. If there's a, uh, if there is ever, and, and it again happens quite often, uh, uh, the, the train loses brake pressure for, for some reason, there is a problem with the train. Well, the train now has to stop and the conductor has to get down on the ground and walk the entire train to locate the problem. And, Walking on the side of a rail of the railroad tracks in the middle of the woods is not nice, even flat walking. Mm. Um, and walking two miles to the end of the train, and then turning around and walking two miles back to the head of the train, there's a a, a couple of hours it's going to take you to do that. Yeah, at least it would seem to me. Yeah. Now, is the, the crew? How many people are on a train crew? Two, three, two. Okay. Two. There is the conductor and the engineer. And do you both do the walk, or does one person stay? Only one person do the walk. Just the conductor does the walk. The engineer. The engineer is is responsible for the train and the engines. He will stay on the engine. Okay. And ju- and the conductor does the groundwork. What about? Okay, is this true? Like, if the train stops, I mean, obviously, trains cross bridges. They go through tunnels. I mean, this is true, even if the train is sort of partly in a tunnel or. Uh, yeah, if it's if it's partly in a say over a trestle over a bridge, and it's an area that you cannot, um, you cannot make it to the end of the train. Mm. Um, there will be instances where they will have to call another crew in from behind you, because there will be there will be a train coming up behind you somewhere, and they will have to walk the train up up to the point they can from the rear. Mm. And you cover it from the front or, or you'll have, they'll send out someone from the maintenance, from the, the, uh, what's called the car department. They'll actually send someone out to inspect the train. So the delay, so basically the simple answer is that the delay delays are twice as long, right? Trains are twice as long. So delays are twice as long because, or maybe more because it doesn't really take, twice as long to inspect twice the distance people are human they get tired it, it's slower it's more than tw- a little more than twice as long right correct yes correct and so toby also this is like a side issue which i think is just sort of cool to to know this information and you can impress your friends at cocktail parties um <laughs> if once your 12 hour shift you know those 12 hours end no matter where you are the train stops is that right uh, that's correct. That is correct. We're not allowed to operate the train over 12 hours. So once you uh, once you're approaching 12 hours, if you're not at your destination, then uh, the dispatchers have to make arrangements for that train to stop somewhere in a siding, get it off of the main line 
stop somewhere and we'll either tie the train down, which means just apply all the brakes, make sure it's the train is secured. Um, or they'll send a relief crew out to, to relieve us and continue the train on. And you are actually what they send a cab for you, right? Yes. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a, <laughs> it's a, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a taxi service that, uh, that, that the railroads use. You could be in the middle of bumfuck Alabama and you know, this, this, this Uber shows up. Is that true? Really? No, that's true. We use a, uh, we use a, 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 a transport service. Mm-hmm. Um, now sometimes you reach your 12 hours and this is where the day goes from being a 12 hour day to being a 16 hour day. You reach the end of your 12 hour service, hours of service. Uh, you haven't reached your destination. You stop the train. You you apply all the necessary brakes to secure the train, um, and then dispatch says, "Okay, we're sending a we're sending a van for you." Now you sit. You'll might sit there for three or four more hours waiting on a van to pick you up because you're in the middle of nowhere. Because because you are in the middle of nowhere. Go in the middle of nowhere a lot, <laughs> mostly correct, <laughs> almost exclusively, right? Correct. And I have been one time when a van wasn't available. Yes, I have been absolutely. They called an Uber and I was Ubered from Birmingham to Chattanooga. That's a long way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. I'll tell you what. Hey, Ted, why don't we, yeah. why don't we like go into a break right now? And then we're going to come back and we're going to talk the politics of this. I mean, cause this yeah. is what we do. And right. there are, there are mega politics here. To- Toby, if you want to stick around, we'd love to have you join in the conversation. Oh, I would love to. I, I, I would. Uh, I'll defer to your expertise in the politics of it. But uh... unless, unless the train calls you in right now, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, okay, so you're listening to the DMZ America podcast. I'm Scott Stannis coming to you from the right. I'm Ted Rawl coming to you from the left. Stick around. We'll be right back. And we're back. If you're listening to the DMZ America podcast, it is Friday, October 21st, 2022. I'm Scott Stantis. I will be shockingly coming to you from the right, and I'll tell you why shockingly in a second. Ted? And I will be coming predictably to you from the left. And we're joined by railroad conductor Toby Kemp. I still think you should wear wear the hat. I'm sorry. I know you guys make fun of the guys who wear the hats and the outfits, Toby, but... (laughs) There are some who like to wear the hats and they wear the overalls. They they go the whole nine yards. But not the guys. Who, you said the guys who work for the railroad actually mock those guys, right? I mean, uh, you know, there there are some because there are there are people who are fascinated by trains, love trains, and they that this is they love them and uh, they will spend their off days following trains around and and some some that's called people, stalking. That's not love. No. <laughs> Well, you know, some people, some people on the railroad kind of joke about the people who have that mentality, but to me, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of jealous. They're doing what they love. They're, they, they actually, they love this job. They're doing what they are passionate about. And I'm kind of jealous of that, to be honest. Wait, how yeah. did you, how did you get into this job? Cause you mentioned that you just started fairly recently. Um, like, did you work previously at other railroads or like, what, what's your, what's your career track here? Like, how does someone end up, you know, driving a train, you know, which is something that, you know, every little boy thinks about doing, you know, just like drawing cartoons and some of <laughs> and some of us end up doing it. Um, you know, how did that how did that happen? Well, I'll tell you, I, I, I kind of fell into it. Um, I have no kind of experience, previous experience that would that would give me a leg up in the railroad business. Uh, I actually worked in the insurance field. Which was, and I, I had worked in insurance for several years and was absolutely miserable. It was a miserable job. And I just got burned out. I left that. I was looking for something different. Uh, I had a family member who was the office manager for the, the company that does all the pre screening, medical pre screening, and drug testing for the railroad. Hmm. She said, Well, you know, the railroad is hiring. Why don't you try them? And I, I knew that I had, I had heard, you know, sure, railroad pays well, has a good retirement, why not? So I, uh, I filled out an application about three months later, they called me and 
And basically the interview was, do you mind working in the elements? No, I don't mind working in the elements. Do you understand you're going to be away from home a good bit? Yes, I understand that. Great. That's all we need to know. Wow. That's it. So wait, that how long, was, so, so how much, how long is, the, I'm sorry, uh, how long, I got to know this stuff. How long is the training uh, to learn how to, uh, uh, to, how to, how to, how to drive a train? Well, no, I don't, I don't drive the train. Okay. I, I, I do want to clarify that. Okay. I'm not the engineer. I'm the conductor. Right. Okay. Uh, the training they do, the training is pretty extensive, six to eight months. And a large part of that the conductor is basically the physical aspect, the physical requirements of the job. Very basic. You can learn that very quickly. Most of what you're learning is you're learning um, the yards, Chattanooga Yard, Meridian Yard, Atlanta Yard. You're learning basically where all those tracks go and what switches you need to throw to get the train where it needs to go. Because the last thing you want to do is throw a wrong switch and right wind up in a wrong track where there is another train coming head on at you. And the hijinks ensue after that. Oh, uh, the wonderful hijinks. Okay, wonderful I have the dorkiest <laughs> question of all time. Why aren't there cabooses anymore? Yes. Thank you, Ted. Thank you. Because cabooses okay. were cute. I, I, I was a kid in the 70s and I remember seeing them on the back of freight trains. I, I lived near a, a train yard for a year when I lived in Houston, Texas with my family. I was a little kid. I was 10 or 11 years old and the train yard was there. So the, the trains had stopped and we actually broke into some cabooses maybe. <laughs> I think the, the statute of limitations is over, but they were, they were bunk out. They were essentially tra trailers. Why are they gone, Toby? Why did you destroy this? Why do you hate America? Oh, you got me. <laughs> um, well, because trains used to have a crew of five people. And basically, the caboose on top of carrying people, it was also it was also the the it signified the obviously signified the end of the train. Um, the railroad decided, well, we can do away with three of those five people. And instead of having a caboose, we will use this nice little computerized marker that has a flash, flashing red light on it, and it will give the engineer all the information he needs about brake pressure and and is everything is is the train solid from beginning to end? Is there any problem? Um, so once they develop this little this little marker called an end of train device, and it just hooks on to the end of the train, that's when they decided, well, we don't need cabooses now. So what, but what was the purpose of the caboose originally? I mean, besides just being cute. <laughs> um, well, you had, and honestly, I'm, I am post caboose era. I don't know exactly <laughs> what all the caboose did. I know it carried, uh, I believe it carried the, the brakeman, the signalman, um, who the jobs are no longer needed now. And a lot of times, uh, um, also, if a train has to, you've got a 6,000 foot train that has to go backwards. It has what's called shoving into a location. Mm. Well, you have to watch that. There has to be someone on the tail end watching that to make sure no, there's no person on the tracks. There's no cars on the track. Um, unfortunately, now, if we have to do that, that becomes the conductor's job and he has to be on the tail end. Uh, back when there was a caboose, there was not a problem because there was already someone back there. So, so you you so already had a crew member. Excuse me. So that's less delay it, with, with 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 the caboose. They things could go a little faster. Correct. Correct. So let me jump. Let me jump in and throw in the politics now because that's what we do. We suck the fun out of everything on this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I was doing so well with my caboose question. All right. Anyway, what's <laughs> well, actually that's the one that's going to get the traction. Yeah. Um. So so okay. So so the, the unions now are threatening to strike. It looks like, and I would have to guess that the likelihood of a strike now, given that they just rejected yet another offer late last night. Um. So there's going to be a railroad strike. Um, here's the politics of things. And that's, um, is this vital to the national interest? And President Biden's going to have to decide that. Harry Truman in 1950 and 1952, 52 being the steel strike, where he actually nationalized the steel industry, which I think is amazing. 
to get the steelworkers back to work, saying it was vital. He was still trying uh, in 1950. He was trying to ramp up um, for the Korean War, the uh, Korean conflict. Moving forward in 1978, Jimmy Carter. Uh, uh, the coal strike, he had to deal with that and invoke Taft-Hartley, which Harry Truman actually uh, vetoed, if I'm learning correctly. And then, of course, Ronald Reagan with the air, air traffic controllers uh, in the in the 80s. Um, so, Scott, you should explain what the Taft-Hartley Act is. Go ahead. I think you probably know it more intimately than I do. Well, so... The, so basically, it's it's uh, it's an anti-labor law passed under the uh, under the Truman administration, but uh, vetoed by Truman. But the but the Republican Congress passed it over his objections. And basically, what it says is that public service workers can't strike uh, at all, and that uh, and that and that in addition, uh, workers in the private sector can't strike. If that strike would meaningfully meaningfully affect uh, the U.S. economy or some vital strategic interest of the United States, so in other words, effectively, a good example of that would be like, say, private school teachers might not be theoretically allowed to strike if they were going to go on strike because even though they're pri- they work for a private institution, uh, education is considered an important national interest. And if a private teacher strike were to go on for a long time, uh, Taft-Hartley could theoretically be invoked. Okay. So here's the political part. And this is why I kind of teased it at the top of the segment in that as a, you know, as a conservative, you're going to come out and say, Reagan was right. Unions are evil and bad. And I'm I'm going to say, no, that's not my feeling at all. Um, I like unions. I like them very much. I think that it's any, anytime you voluntarily get together with people when you have, and that's the only power you have um, then I have no issue with that. Where I probably, Ted and I probably differ, or maybe we don't. I don't know. We've never really talked about this. I know I don't know if Toby and I would disagree either. Uh, and that is, I we live in Alabama. It's a right to work state, so I don't. You don't have to be forced to join the union. That is to say, you don't have to pay to have a job, which I always thought was really anti-American. And uh, but. I also, I have joined two unions in my life and both of them were newspaper unions and both of them were in right to work states because I just was scared to death that, you know, we talk about scheduling, we talk about sick days, but the other thing is I don't want to just have my boss say, oh, I don't like the cut of his jib, Stannis, you're fired, which has happened. If I had, if a union were in place, I would have been able to contest it and actually had some protections, which I, which, you know, as benevolent as our overlords say they are, they are not. So in terms of, and now Ted and I have talked about radical policy and radicalization and radical action. If the, if the railroad workers go on strike, and I think they have totally legitimate cause here. I mean, this is, we've, we've heard about the scheduling. We've heard about the lack of sick days. Um, isn't it Ted? I mean, you, I know Ted will agree with me on this striking and yes, it hurts the national interest. That's the only way you get attention in this country. That's That's the point of a strike, right? I mean, you with workers, um, they bargain collectively. And if those negotiations fail, the purpose of a union is that, that they can withhold their labor, which they have the right to do morally and legally because, Ever since Lincoln signed that pesky Emancipation Proclamation, slavery is no longer a thing. You can't force people to work. So, uh, if and then if and you know and it, that is meant to cause inconvenience and lost profits to the employers and perhaps to other people residually. But the whole point is that you're you know you're you're doing something that is deemed important enough that if it, you're not doing it. It, it's going to hurt people. Uh, it's going to hurt your bosses. And then presumably they will come back to the negotiating table and maybe give you some of the things that you're demanding. Uh, that That's basic supply and demand in the labor management marketplace. It is, it's the very essence of what it means to be a free human being. But let me counter that with this, with this question. I want to pose this to Toby as well. How do you counter, how, how do you counter that, that the strike would significantly damage an already weak economy, which it definitely would. Supply chains would be, would be come to a standstill. So Toby, if you're talking to me or you're talking to the American people, or you're just talking to your son, how do you, how do you, how do you countenance counter that argument against going on strike? 
Oh, <laughs> goodness. Um, because if the well, country goes down, it's all your fault. I mean, <laughs> right. it's, it's all our fault. Um, it's, it's, it's all our fault. Um, well, I I have to agree with with exactly what Ted said, but we do fall under the same um, stipulations. Thanks to the Railway Labor Act, where we go on if we go on strike, it was decided that it would be such a blow to the to the national supply chain and infrastructure infrastructure that Congress can just put us right back to work. So they can just tell you to go to work. Yes. Congress, the, the railway labor act um, basically decided that we were, we were too big to fail or, or however you'd like to phrase it, that if we go on strike, Congress can then put us back to work. So, uh, our ability to strike is is almost almost an empty gesture. Um, we we hope that the threat of a strike, even a, even a strike that usually would last two hours, the the strike might last twelve hours before we get put back to work. That uh, maybe the president and Congress would put enough pressure on the railroads that they would concede rather than just have Congress force us back to work. Toby, could you fathom a, situ- a scenario in which case, in which uh, situation the, uh, the workers were so angry that they would say, fuck you and your order to get back to work. You can't make us get back to work. Jail us if you want. We're not going. Uh, I can't. I can very easily picture that. Um, it would mean... It would mean for the for the basic and for the rank and file, you would have to be willing to go on a strike that might actually cost you your job. For the union representatives, they would actually have to be willing to face Congress and potential jail time. Um, And I don't know, honestly, that I have enough faith in our union representatives that they would be willing to oppose Congress and, and as I said, actually face jail time for refusing to go back to work. I mean, is there enough I, I think about the teachers. Scott, do you remember the teacher strike in West Virginia about a year, two years ago, maybe it was? No, it was pre-pandemic, I think. Um, anyway, that was an illegal strike. And the teacher, you know, West Virginia is not exactly a liberal state, but they didn't jail those teachers. They got what they wanted. And I was going to ask Toby, I mean, and this is talking to one worker, so I understand, you know, uh, that you don't speak for everybody. But do you, is your sense that, is there enough anger to get to that point? That is to say, you know, fuck the Congress, fuck the law, we're going to strike, jail us, we're, you know, we are many and mighty and we're going to win this. Uh, I get the sense among, among the general employees like myself. Yes, that mentality is there because we feel like, um, at, at least in our case, our uh, in our negotiations, um, our employer has never conceded anything past their initial offer they they initially put on the table. They've they have not conceded a single thing. So every time we've gone into negotiations, they've said, "No, I'm sorry, you have our offer." We're not where there was there's basically no negotiation. They started out day one saying you have our offer, take it or leave it. Kobe, what and, is this about? Why? Why are they? I mean, like, what is what is why is management so unwilling to countenance the idea of uh, you know, more sick days, more budget flexibility? Like what what is it? What is it? Uh, you know, obviously, this is an issue of control for them. Why is it important to them, do you think? Um, I believe uh, allowing us, allowing more schedule flexibility, honestly, would require more people. It would would require more, more employees. They've, they've kind of made their bed on, um, as you stated, the way they changed the schedule a few years ago. Uh, They've kind of made their bed on this longer trains, fewer employees, and now to to concede that this new this new way of working is working us to death is to admit 
admit that the system that they that they uh, glommed onto isn't really working. And now they're going to have to go back to the drawing boards, come up with something new, hire more people, and maybe go back to how it was 10, 10 years ago. And I, I really don't think they want to concede that they've made a mistake. They just, I mean, don't, me, they just don't want to spend the money and rehire that whatever 30% of workers they laid off in the last few years. Yeah. Very true. I think that's part of it. But the other part too, I really do believe is power. I mean, this really is not, I mean, there's no practical reason to do this. I mean, let me throw out, my brother works at Home Depot and my brother, this is salient, I promise. (laughs) My my brother loves to get up at ungodly o'clock AM. I mean, just, I mean, just that's, he's just up. So you get an employer like employee like that. You say, great. We're scheduling you in the mornings because then you can be here. I think people have to be there at five 30 to set up the bricks or whatever they do there. Uh, no, he has, I mean, his schedule will be, he has to be there at five 30 in the morning. And then the next, next day he works until 10 o'clock at night. I mean, it's insanity how, and the scheduling, why can't there be scheduling for, you know, employees like that? I mean, it makes no sense to me. And that's true of like Walmart. It's true of all these other, you know, big box, small box. I mean, I never understood other than because I can, the rationale has always been because I can, that's it. And I mean, and that's where workers say, fuck this. I mean, you know, they're wondering why there's quiet quitting, which is a bullshit phrase, by the way. Um, They wonder why, you know, people said, fuck the employers, why there's this mass, you know, the mass resignation is because they're tired of being treated like shit. And because they had a, a, you know, a dick, you know, boss who said, who scheduled them in weird hours and because they could and take it or leave it. And Americans are saying, well, we're going to leave it. So, um, this is a deeper question. I'm not sure any of us is qualified to answer the question, but how does how does the Railroad um, Labor Act jibe with the 14th Amendment, which is you cannot coerce someone into involuntary labor? Anyone? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, it just struck me that, wait a minute, you can't, I can't, I can't tell, I can't call Ted and say, Ted, draw me a cartoon. Uh, actually, I'm about to go take my son back to college. No. Draw me a cartoon now. Well, I mean, I, I I do know something about, I do have this some experience with this, Scott. I mean, it's like, there's a lot of, you know, it's like uh, I used to be a taxi driver here in New York City and we had something called shape ups, which a lot of uh, sort of working blue collar jobs had like on, like for example, uh, Longshoreman, which I also uh, worked as. Um, and basically a shape up was uh, you'd go and present yourself and uh, to the taxi garage, uh, by the way, to just paint the picture, it was actually uh, the actual taxi garage that the TV show Taxi, the opening was filmed at. It was the Hudson Street garage at Hudson and 10th Street, which is no more many, many years. Danny DeVito was not there, but the equivalent <laughs> of Danny DeVito, who is actually usually a uh, an equivalently meaner but taller man, um, would would <laughs> would sit up on, on his throne and there might be 30 of us taxi drivers, but only 15 taxis. And he would pick and choose who of us got to go out. So, so you know, we, we had to make ourselves available. And there was only a 50% chance that we would actually get a shift. You have to go schlep down there and do that. And then the, then the flip side of it is if you wanted to be one of those people who was likely to get picked for your shift, for a, sh- a shift, uh, you know, at the shape up, um, they would call if they were shorthanded and say, oh, can you drop whatever you're doing and come down and pick up a cab? And your answer had better be yes, because if you didn't, you would be ignored at like every shape up going forward. So you had like you had a hot date, you were or let's say you had a, you know, a, a, a job gig that wasn't as important. You had to like drop what you're doing and like 530 be at the garage by six o'clock and go drive for 12 hours. I mean, it's, there's a lot of employers who, uh, I mean, and also fast food. I think they're also doing this a lot where they're like, you know, drop what you're doing, come down and do a shift right now. Toby and I met uh, when we were working at the uh, newspaper, the Birmingham news. And um, we, um, you know, we, we saw instances of, of grand abuse. In fact, one of the reasons uh, Toby left was they brought in a person who, um, was oh how can i put this toby a tyrant oh a human being miserable horrible, horrible human being 
Oh, yes. Yes. They brought in a horrible human being. Who always seemed to ascend to the heights of management for some reason. I, I've never been able to understand that at all, uh, truly. And so, I mean, effectively, uh, you know, abused Toby out of the business. Uh, he was working in IT at the time. Um, I, I, management labor relations has never been great, obviously. It's, it's, it, 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 it's adversarial in this country, and it always has been. And I never understood that. You look at, like, let's say, look at the unions in Germany, look at the unions in Japan, where they actually have a, a seat on the board of directors. That to me seems to, I mean, that just makes sense. I don't know that I would, you know, re, you know, legislate that. But anyway, I'm, I'm babbling here. Um, well, it, it has been done here in the United States. I mean, you know, you mentioned Japan. I used to work for a Japanese bank, the Industrial Bank of Japan Trust Company in the late 1980s. And I remember uh, we had most of the time when uh, one of our clients, like an automaker, wanted to build a plant here in the U.S., they would li- usually... Uh, say, oh, we want to go to a right to work state like Tennessee or Kentucky. And, uh, you know, we, how can we how can we really fuck over the unions? But um, there was some there were some exceptions to those rules. Uh, Honda, when they decided to move to Ohio, um, Saturn, who all, although they're in Tennessee, um, they uh, you know, Saturn was part of a Japanese company um, partnership. Um, we got these calls and it was really nice. They said, uh, could you guys reach out to the UAW for us? Uh, you know, we want to bring them in before we even start to build the plant. Uh, we want to like, you know, have them, we want to have them partner with us. We want to like see what their concerns would be before we start doing anything. And so we can design the plant around like work rules. And, you know, they they wanted to hear to talk to the union. They didn't want it to be adversarial. I mean, obviously it's inherently adversarial because, you know, la- labor wants to work for as, as little as possible for as much money as possible. And management wants to make you work as much as possible and pay you as little as possible. But still, you within those constraints, it is possible to be civilized, you know, and to, and also, I think, you know, a lot of some work, some managers realize that uh, some employers realize that the less friction you have with your workers, the more money you're going to save in the long run. Yeah. No, it makes perfect sense. So, uh, I, I, again, I never quite understood any of that, but we will fall. Before we wrap this up, Toby and Ted, what's the, what do you think the percentages of the strike happening? And if it does happen, what happens? Toby, you go first. Um, as I see it right now, I, I think a strike is inevitable. I think once the, once the cooling off period deadline passes, which I said I believe is November 19th, I think a strike is inevitable. Um, what happens? I think a strike will last at most 12 hours and we will get put back to work and be be no better off than we were. We still won't have a contract or we'll have the we'll have the contract uh, forced on us that was recommended by Biden. Um, but the strike will be will be short-lived congress will have us back to work and whether we like it or not we'll have a new contract is there any sign from the white house that they will back up the 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 unions in any way in this it um, sure doesn't sound like it from what i've heard and read no no from what i've read um and you know me i'm a i'm a i'm a liberal democrat and uh I always believed that the, the Democrats supported the working man, and but I am not seeing that from the White House uh, in in this deal, not at all. No, Scranton Joe is not going to uh, jump yeah, in. Exactly. Uh, well, you know, we saw what what Jimmy Carter, a uh, great lion lion of liberalism, did for the coal strikers. In in look the- at Harry Truman, who was you know l- you know very pro union until he wasn't. You know, um, he literally nationalized an entire industry to break the union. Um, Ted, what do you th- do? You, do you think Toby's um, take on so, it? Yeah, close? I mean, I have to agree with with Toby's take. I mean, you know, I, I, look, I'm I'm not normally sympathetic to uh, President Biden, but I'm going to say that uh, you know, with between a 33 and 40 percent of all exports into the United States and uh, and domestic uh, cargo being shipped uh, by rail. Um, you know, it, it can't obviously, it, you know, no president would voluntarily allow that sector to, uh, you know, to add to the already crazy supply chain problems 
that exist in this country. I mean, he's the, the Biden administration is up against the wall, so I don't think they're going to come to the rescue here. Although personally, I think it is wrong. Um, you know, uh, I think it's I think it's a tragedy. Uh, I, I think things will play out just the way Toby said. I think it's a tragedy that that he that he and his um, fellow employees are going to be forced back to work. It's immoral. I mean, no one should be able to be forced back to work. And on that happy note, <laughs> we're going to wrap things up here. Thank you for listening to this edition of the DMZ America podcast. Toby, if anyone wants to follow you, can they go to Facebook or the Instagrams or the Book of Faces or any of that stuff? <laughs> Absolutely. They can, uh, they can find me on Facebook. Um, I don't really, I don't really do the, the, the Twitters and the tweets and the, all of that. I'm too old for all of that. I'm, I'm in the, I'm in the age group where we, we stay on Facebook. So that's just Toby Kemp, right? If just Toby, Toby Kemp. Kemp. Yes, sir. Okay. Um, Ted, where can we see you? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll do an abbreviated version this time. Just go to rawl.com, R-A-L-L.com. Or you can check out gocomics.com slash Ted Rawl. And for my stuff, just go to gocomics.com slash either Prickly City, my comic strip, or Scott Stantis, one word, that's gocomics.com. Hey, listen, guys, thank you. And Toby, thanks for taking your valuable time. I mean- So awesome. Thanks, Toby. Oh, no, thank you. No, absolutely. It was really, really fascinating. Just for the caboose lore alone. Yeah, we got, (laughs) that was off, that was off mic. So we, um, so now we're going to have to, We'll tease that for next episode. We may or may not leak the story <laughs> of the caboose, which sounds like a children's book, which is someone said this is the most infantile podcast. They may be right. Uh, until next time, we'll see you in the funny papers. Uh-huh.